My quote for this episode of Musicians Real Talk is from Dr. Maladoma Somme, Ph.D. In Dagara culture, the drum is the transportation device that carries the listener into other worlds. Only the sound of the drum has the power to make one travel in this specific way. Where the sound ship goes, everybody goes. To refuse to drum is to refuse to travel. To forget how to drum is to forget how to feel. Hi, and welcome to Musicians Real Talk. I'm your host, Glenn Douglas. Musicians Real Talk is a podcast which serves to provide life stories and information about musicians performing in and around the Washington, Maryland, and Virginia area. Understand, musicians, we arrive at the job, we exchange greetings, we perform, we pack up, and eventually we go our separate ways. Rarely do we engage in our life stories or share in conceptual devices which contribute to us doing this thing called music. The Musician's Real Talk podcast aims to fill that void. My guest today is Michael Friend, who is the artistic director of the African dance and performance group Soul and Motion Players. With a unique way of combining learning and entertainment, which they call edutainment, Soul in Motion uses the concept of edutainment to lead their audiences through understanding the differences and similarities of different cultures. The group is based out of the Rockville, Germantown, Maryland area and will be celebrating their 36th year of performance excellence in 2019. Michael is a percussionist whose specialty is African drumming, but is also a playwright, actor, and he served as Vice President of Grants for the Arts and Humanities Council of Montgomery County. In our conversation today, we would touch on his start in the music business and the creation of soul and motion players, also what it takes to maintain consistent success with a dance performance group, and lastly, his thoughts on building a community that is centered on African dance. Everyone, welcome to the Musicians Real Talk podcast, Michael Friend. Good to be here. Thanks, Glenn. So, Mike, how did you get into this thing called music? How did I get into this thing called music? So, you know, that's that's a million-dollar question. But, um, you know, I actually I started in Philly, North Philadelphia. Okay. And a very interesting story about how I actually was exposed to drumming. I, it was 1967, 68, uh, coming out, I was about 9, 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And the church where I was attending, it was Church of the Advocate, Episcopal Church, uh, Father Paul Washington, he was a very popular pastor in the 60s and 70s. Uh, great story about Father Washington. But at the church, they were holding arts-related classes for kids in, in the neighborhood. Yeah. And during that time, we had a gang problem. It was a really bad gang problem in the 60s and 70s uh, in Philly. And so one of the classes they were going to have was a kunga class. And basically, all you had to do was show up brother gave everybody in the class a conga and he showed us a rhythm called the one hand rumba okay that's how the rhythm went that was okay the, that was, that was, <laughs> so he said take the conga home practice that and i'll see you in a couple of days come back to the church bring your drum i want to see you know what everybody's doing so i get home I'm in the basement at the house, and I'm playing my one-hand room. But, you know, so I'm getting this thing down, you know. Right. So I go back over to the church for the second class, and the, the cat was a no-show. Oh. So I took my one-hand room, but my conga went back home. And, and to make a long story short, the brother never showed up again. 
Whoa. It was a, it was one of the, the craziest things I ever experienced. I so here I am with a conga, right, and the one hand Roomba, and that's <laughs> and, and that that got me into drumming. I just kinda, I fell in love with that one conga. Uh, that led me to playing with uh, African dancers and drummers. I was working with uh, Arthur Hall, uh, one of the oldest uh, African dance and drum companies, okay. you know, in the country. Wow! Um, but that was my that was my way of sort of getting into this whole music thing, just from this one class, one conga, the one hand Roomba, one, <laughs> one hand Roomba. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So, did you ever play any other styles of music? Certainly, yeah. So, uh, my English teacher, Les Willis, he uh, he he taught English at my school, and um, he knew I played. So, he invited me to come to a rehearsal. And they had a group like uh, it was almost like they were like the Drifters or uh, Tavares. You know, they were that oh, kind okay. of group, you know, local yeah, yeah, group. Yeah. You know, the choreography, the whole nine yards. So I found a cousin of mine to drive me to the rehearsal. That was over in West Philadelphia, on the other side of town. Here I'm coming with my one conga. <laughs> and Philly, you know, we had the yeah, we had the Philadelphia sound, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so that was you know, the conga stuff was big in Philly. So, you know, that song just started off with congas. And uh, I can't remember the name of the tune, but the, the song started out. It was like an OJ type <laughs> yeah, tune, yeah, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. Typical Philly sound. Right. And so they, they wanted me to play that pattern. So, you know, I played it on, on my one conga. And so that kind of got me exposed to that sort of top 40 Philadelphia sound. Yeah. Uh, while I was still working with the, the African drumming, but it kind of exposed me on the conga side. Right. And Philly was great for that, that style of music because it was, right. I mean, it was built for just percussion stuff coming out of the, coming out of there. And that, so that did, did get me, got me into R and B. Eventually, led me to jazz. But, um, but you know, I think my calling, having worked with the African dance and drum, was really the root for me. Okay. Because okay. it really kind of gave me the basis on which. All the other drumming was was you know sort of founded, yeah. And um, so from congas to bongo to trap drums to timpani, you just name it, even piano. Yes. It's like wow, you know this this African drum, this djembe, yeah. is sort of the root. It's like where we where we're from, you know. Yeah. When you start getting to that part of it, you know. So yeah. that was, yeah. so that was yeah. always my thing. I could not let that go. It was just like wow. Okay, I understand all these other genres. But when I step into jazz or I step into R&B, um, you know, I've had I've had the pleasure of working with a, you know, uh, what they call Afro, Afro pop. Uh, uh, what was the other style called? Uh, Persian pop. You know, these folks came from Persian countries yeah. and mm-hmm. was doing, you know, doing stuff in six eight. Yeah. And so what would always happen is I would be able to reach back to my African drum days and understand those patterns. So things were in six eight. They were in Bossa Nova, they were, you know, merengue, samba, you know, mambo. I was able to pull from the root and then right, apply right. that in the other genres. Right. You know, right. so if a song made a move and it started out with maybe just a straight four and it had maybe eight bars of a samba type thing happening, I, I, could, I could make the switch and yeah, recognize yeah, yeah. just for that short spell where that was and, you know, where to go with that. Yeah. And so I just thought it made me a you know a very diverse player in understanding the different styles. Yeah. You know. 
so yeah so that so so it's been it's been great to be able to sort of use fuse that whole african drum root across all the different genres so did you get into the history of the various uh african rhythms sure for sure and, and i did that for a while but i i tell you uh, i'll tell you a story my my freshman year, I went to uh, Fisk University in Nashville. I, did, okay. I was mm-hmm. at Fisk for a year, and then I transferred to Howard. And uh, when I got to Fisk, I was majoring in communications, and I wanted to get into broadcasting. Or at least I thought I wanted to get into broadcasting, but they didn't have a broadcasting program. <laughs> the reason why I went to Fisk is they gave me a scholarship. They gave me money. You know, <laughs> so, you know. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but, you know, uh, at the homecoming that year, this was 1976, they had uh, a cat come in there for homecoming. His name was Ronnie Dyson. Okay. And uh, Ronnie came in, and the percussionist that came in with Ronnie was, I, I mean, he blew me away. And it was, this guy had like half, it seemed like seemingly half the stage was his percussion rig. Wow. Wow. And so, of course, you know, I introduced myself, went up and introduced myself, kind of find out it was uh, Doc Gibbs. And oh, okay. So, yeah, so Doc yeah. said, hey, man, I'm from Philly. And um, when you come home, just call me, man. We can sit down and go over some stuff. I was like, really? So he gave me his card. That was 1976. This day, uh, Doc and I are still very good friends. He's you know, living yeah. out in L.A. now. Yeah. But, you know, Doc soon became my mentor. But, um, but to answer your question on that, what Doc was able to um, share with me was not only different rhythms, but the history of those rhythms. You know, yeah. sort of the Afro-Cuban thing. Like, so the thing, the thing back in the 70s, we didn't know really the root of Afro-Cuban. We called it Afro-Cuban. But we didn't understand really the the role that Cuba played in our history until years later. The internet really helped out with that. Yes, you know? yes. So we didn't know yes. that, you know, uh, our ancestors were studying what they call Santeria, which right. was a Yoruba uh, religion from West Africa, had, you know, gone into Cuba. And then Castro, like, squashed it. I'm going to keep it right here. You can't leave. This is where school, you know, it's, and so he knew the power of what he had there. And so we as African, African-Americans weren't able to make that connection into Cuba. We, we, we said Afro-Cuban, but we didn't understand right. that they were doing the whole Yoruba thing, the Yoruba thing from West Africa, Santeria and the whole connection. So it didn't really start coming out until maybe like the early to mid eighties, where we could really start connecting the dots. And all the Orishas and all the different styles, all the different patterns, the rhythms, and really how they, you know, where they came with. What's, what's merengue? What is, you know, what is the samba? What is mambo? What is what mm, all these rhythms right. stand, yeah. in, you know, yeah. in our, in our mm-hmm. culture? Yeah. And Doc was really, um, for me, he was really the guy who really opened that, that's, that whole area for me to just say, hey, not only are we going to talk about bossa nova, but we're going to talk about, you know, the root of that and talk about each rhythm. And you really get into the history, right? You know the right, history lesson. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, so yeah, so, man. so you understand that, you know. Yeah. And and you know, it's funny for, as a percussionist. You know, I think that's unique to our instrument. You know, I think when I even I meet cats that are playing, you know, I think it's it's integral to what we do when we come to the stage or the band, you know, the bandstand. Where we you know, we we need to understand what we bring to the table in that drum. Right. Um, you know, the history of that, because uh, anytime I get the chance to do workshops and lessons, and I tell people, you know, with the slave trade, 
Um, it's, it's always an interesting story. You know, with the slave trade, and they were transporting slaves, and they would get to the ports, and the slaves would be so sickly that they couldn't sell them. So they had to come up with a, a, some kind of plan to keep these slaves healthy enough that when they got to the ports, they could sell them. Right. So they said, you know what? So they so they they brought a drummer, and they put him up on the on the top of the ship, and this cat would play, so that the slaves that were down in the hall they could hear it, and they they would give them something to live for. They could hit his drum, and then when they got to the port, the first person gone was the drummer. Right, because they just needed them to keep the health. Yeah. So they your job, your yeah, job, yeah, your job is done. Job, you kept the job. slaves healthy enough for us to be able to sell them. Right, and so when the slaves got to their destinations, the first thing that they stripped away from us was the drum. Mm. So I always yeah. tell kids when I get a chance, I said, just think about it. you know, you live in D.C. Somebody takes you out to Boyd's, and they take away your cell phone. You are totally disconnected. Right, you, you have no right. way of communicating. You know, you're talking a different language, and that's how it was with the drum. That was the first thing that was stripped away. So when I make a statement uh, in regards to the language of the drum, uh, what comes to mind for you? You know, I, I, wrote, I wrote a short piece, and it's, it goes like this. It's real, the drum, the original line of communication. If you listen closely, you will hear the original line of communication, the drum. And um, when I and when I thought about that, you know, that to me, um, for us as a people, that is our first telephone. You know, that is mm. our first pager. Right. That is yeah. our, you know, that that is the way. That's why when we when we go places and people hear the drum, uh, you know, it doesn't really it doesn't really affect ethnicity or anything. The drum has a. a has a universal pulse. I wrote a show one time for the National Theater called um, Beats of the Heart. They asked me to write a show that they could do at the National on the side of the main stage that people could just walk in off the street and relate to. So they said, we got people that are homeless. We got people who are coming off of their jobs. Right, right. They just don't want to drive in the traffic and they want to have something to do. Can you come up with a show that will relate to all of these people that might just walk into the to the theater? Okay. And I said, okay, let me think about it. And I came up with this, this show called Beats of the Heart. And the whole show was about basically what is the one thing that we all have in common, regardless of what church you go to, what <laughs> what, what team you cheer right, for. With, right, we right. all have a heartbeat. That's right. That's right. Right? If right. we didn't have a heartbeat, we wouldn't be here. That's right. So we all have a heartbeat. So that, that drum, scientifically, at some point, we're all in the room together. Our heartbeats are going to start beating together, and we don't even realize it because of just because of the pattern. Right. You know, all of a sudden, all, we're all going to be in sync. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the beat, the heartbeat is just going to go. You know, goom goom, goom goom, goom goom. That's our, and that's our heart beating. Right. And at some point, scientifically, it's all going to be in there together. Everybody's yeah. going to be it's sort in of sync. dialed in. Yep. It's in sync. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so it was. So it was, so it made sense. It was like, okay, I can't get, I can't get more basic than that. You know, yeah, beats man. of the heart. Yeah. You know, we attach yeah. it to the drum. Yeah. Somebody walking it off the street. You know, they, hey, they're gonna get this. You know, they're yeah. gonna get the, the the story of uh, what we're talking about. And they, you know, they. It was a one man show. You know, I just set, I set up the stage with all these drums, 
from all over the world, and I just kind of took them on an adventure with all these drums. I had just come back from Cameroon. I was in Cameroon in 1989, so I had just come back from there. So I said, this would be a great chance to write about that story, right? right tied into right, the beats of the heart, right. talk about my, my journey in Cameroon while I'm telling a story about all these drums and connected to the, the heartbeat. So yeah. I was able to kind of you know mesh all that in there together. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, um, how did Soul in Motion come about? Yeah, 1984. Um, so I came out of Howard in 1981, and um, I got called to, to, for this job, this government job that was with a Department of Defense contractor over in Bethesda. Okay. And they hired me in 1984. And <laughs> sometime soon after, I, I, I realized, you know what? I, I, I'm not going to be here very long. I can't, you know, this, <laughs> you know, Xerox had come out with the first desktop computer. They came out with the Xerox Star. You know, right. it sounded like I'm talking about 100 years ago. This was 1984. Right. And I knew at that point that I had to, I had to start, I had to get myself a, an exit plan. I was just like, this, right, like, this right. is not going to be. This uh, isn't it. Yeah, this, this can't. Is not, yeah. This can't be it. <laughs> this, this can't be it. Right, no. right, right. I, I got to be doing something. So, I, so I, you know, I sat there and thought about it, and I go, you know, I said to myself, "Wow, Mike, you got to start your own African dance and drum group. That's what you were raised on in Philly, mm-hmm. and that's what you know, and." Um, just go back to that route and so now I said well now you just need a name and I think I, I was looking at where I was sitting and I was thinking man I'm sitting in front of this computer and you know what Mike you gotta get your soul in motion wow yeah and the moment I said it I was like that's it yeah. soul in motion soul that's what in motion. That's, that's what yeah. I'm gonna call it you know yeah. soul in motion you know yeah. And I stuck the players on there because at that time we were doing theater. You know, it was came out of the box doing theater. I was writing plays and doing poetry, and um, and the drumming was sort of the accentuation of all of that initially. Right. Uh, so out of the box, it wasn't first. First, it wasn't African dance and drum. It was more theater because theater. I actually started in theater in Philly, so that was kind of like my introduction to after the one drum thing. My sister, who's four years old and me got into theater and she kind of dragged me into the whole theatrical piece and the first school to hire me was was Howard okay uh, it was a guy a brother with a name Terry Samuels he was director of uh, student activities I called him up sold him on it because I had never done the show before well, and, yeah. you know, I'm, so I'm selling him on something that was in my head yeah. <laughs> that I could come back to my you know alma mater and you know do this and he said sure sure come over here and meet me so we, we sat down and I had another brother who was working with me at the time, and he and I were supposed to be teaming up. He was supposed to be the guy that was supposed to go, you know, get the contract signed. Or, and uh, I had never heard back from Howard. So I called Terry one day, and I go, he goes, no, your, your man, your partner never showed up. Wow, like, man. wow, you see, no, right. not that. I said, oh man, so I had to leave. I had to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to leave the office, man. I, could, I went flying over to Howard, man. I said, no, 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 no. This, you know, I gotta... So he was so impressed that I had gotten there so quickly because, you know, as far as he knew, I was the guy, you know, I was the man behind the machine. So he right, was like, oh right, man, you came right. over to see me. You know, so, so Terry and I became really good friends after that gig. But that's that was my first job. Selling Soul in Motion, and that's how my sister got into it, because my sister, I called my sister, and we went in, 
and we were doing you know at that point we were we, right out the gate we were doing stuff by the last poets we were doing Gil Scott Heron we were doing Maya Angelou I mean we were doing all those poetry pieces uh, from the 60s and so we were coming in hard I mean, you know, I would have oh, to. Okay. Yeah, I would okay. have to. I have to give a disclaimer to you know, look. I got to take you back to 1960 because uh, you know I had to explain that stuff to students because it was pretty hardcore. I mean, it was, right. and we were doing it. We were doing it right out the box. We weren't doing no editing anything. We were just so. <laughs> so so we give so we give it to them straight, no chaser. Oh wow! Man. <laughs> so so. So, Mike, do you think uh, that soul and motion, uh, looking at where we are with spoken word today, do you think soul and motion was a bit ahead of their time? Yeah, I think we were. I mean, you know, the stuff that we were bringing to the students at that time, I mean, you know, figure Last Poets, you know, Last Poets were very popular in the, in the 50s and the 60s. Right. You know, Maya Angelou and, you know, Gil Scott Heron, of course. And so when, and we, when we brought that into the 80s, you know, we, we were creating this bridge from that that time in our history to to students. And well, let me let me say this. Let me, me kind of fast forward. What was happening in the eighties that I felt in college campuses was it was during a time where um, students they were okay with having sort of diverse friends. Like my friend is from. Uh, I think she's from Guatemala. My other friend is from, Mm -hmm. you know, Arizona, you know. And so they didn't really see much in the way of really trying to investigate that. They were just okay with it. It was just okay. Okay. I I had a diverse group of friends. But did you realize that so-and-so was from El Salvador? He is? Yeah. So have you talked to him about No, that's cool. I didn't know Bob. You know, my man was from You know, so they were cool with it. But it was like, you know, it wasn't really like intriguing to them to sit down and go, man, you're from a different place. So, you know, so what is your family eating or what, you know what? Right, right, right. So I thought I thought it was important that we go in and say diversity is cool. You know, we're all different. And that's cool that you all get along, but understanding that diversity. So if you get a chance to travel to these places, that's even cooler. Right. But you got friends that are from all over the world. Getting to know the person that's yeah, next to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so we found that not only were we sort of in, you know helping that along, but we were, we were getting responses from African-American kids that were going, wow, I... I I never knew that that was part of my blackness, you know. I never, you know, what I mean, and it was <laughs> right. just like they were just like they would be like, "Wow!" They were just like, "Oh my goodness, this has just been amazing to know more about myself," and you know the impact of the whole thing. So in 1989, that's when I wrote the play "We Are Africa." Oh, okay. okay. And I, I wrote that after I read the book by Tony Browder. Okay. Uh, from the Browder Files. And I think I saw, I heard Tony being interviewed, and I immediately went out and bought the book. So, what was it about Tony Browder's book uh, that inspired you to do the play "We Are Africa"? Yeah. So at that time, I think it was a question of Egyptology. Basically, was the study of Egypt, but at that time, archaeologists had found you know, uh, bones and things in Egypt that were older than anywhere else on the planet. Okay. So Egypt became what they refer to as the cradle of civilization. Right. And my, okay. I said, you know what, this is the, this is it. This is exactly what I'm talking about right here because 
regardless of your color, you white, black, brown, yellow, we're all from the same place. We we are Africa. Right. right <laughs> and right, until they right. find something different, right. this is the study is just saying it right here. Right, right. You know? So um so we had a chant that I that I wrote that we would do it at the end of the show. And they went, "We are Africa, African American. We have a culture, a history, and a future." And then we start to draw. We are Africa. We are Africa, African American, African American. We have a culture. We have a culture, a history, and a future. And we would have white kids, Hispanic kids, yellow kids. It didn't matter. They were all chanting this. In these theaters, and these because they got the message after the end of the show, they were like, "That's right, so we are Africa." Man, that is so so powerful, man. When you can get people from other cultures to to recognize that we all come from a common place, and hey, man, we are all Africa, man. We we are Africa, man. <laughs> you talk about you talk about spoken word. We we, we did a thing over at the uh, Tacoma Station one time. The Tacoma Station had just started. And they used to do uh, a spoken word night or something. So I had a young guy who was working with me. His name is uh, James Gilliam. But his, his stage name was Jim Boots. Jim with G-E-M Boots. Mm-hmm. He and his father played with us. And so we took some of his poetry and kind of you know spun it. Did it in sort of the, the old Last Poets kind of vibe. He had a piece called... Um, uh, what, what, what was the name of his piece? Um It'll come to me, but, but we took we took two of his pieces and we 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 spun them, and so we took it into Tacoma Station, and there was a brother there who was doing this piece about um, the history of uh, hurricanes coming across wow. the water. Wow! Wow! Ooh. Right, and he connected <laughs> it to the slave ships. Yeah, he said hurricanes take the same path as the slave ships took across the water. Yeah. And so when you think about the number of slaves that were lost to the, to the waters and why, you know, hurricanes and things are so angry coming across the way, that's, those are all those spirits that are out there in okay. those waters yeah. that are driving, you know, just driving that, that craziness of the water. Yeah. And so, he, so for him to make that connection poetically, was, it was intense because how many of us have even thought about that? And, and so you think about, yeah, so the significance of the, the one piece that, that, that uh, Jim Boots wrote, he, he wrote a piece called, uh, Would You Give Up Your Soul <laughs> for Glitter and Gold? Oh, gosh. And so when he did it for us one night at rehearsal, he, you know, he just did it as a poetry piece. And, um, and his father was like, Mike, 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 this is my son, man. You can, you can do something with this. I told him you can do something with our poetry. You know, da, da, da. So, so I said, well, let me hear what you got. So he said, right. so he went through the whole thing and I just let him do it. And so, you know, so we 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 started a rhythm, you know, and I, I said, I'm gonna take your piece. And I'm just gonna rework your piece right here. Would you give up your soul for glitter and gold? Would you give up your soul for glitter and gold? And that was that straight last poet's kind of vibe, right? And I told him, I said, now just go into your, just go into one of your verses of your piece. You know, it could be out of time. You just do your thing. Just don't even worry about the rhythm. You're going to keep it. And you just and he would just do his reverse. And I said, okay, and we're going to come back in with the hook about three or four times. So you're you're sort of out of time. And our consistent would you give up your soul for glitter and gold? Would you give up your soul? And and you know and so you know the the, the, the whole thing of the. The, the last poet's vibe, that rhythm thing, you know, 
that when you were talking about the spoken word, you know, back in the day, we used to call that sort of choral speaking. You know, when you took it to the stage with theatrics, we, we, you know, we called it, it was choral speaking. I give you one part, I give the next person one part. Together, you come in together, and then you get two people. And, you know, that kind of led into the spoken word vibe. Right. Okay. But okay. when you take 20 people on a stage and you're trying to do a poetic piece, we call it choral speaking. You put a drum behind it. It's yeah. basically what the last poets were doing. Yeah. You know, when you think about some of the stuff that they were doing, you know, it's just, you know, it's right out, right out again, of the book. Again, you know, it's people that are, that, that are way, well, I don't want to say that they're way ahead of their time. Because I mean, at that time, man, that was what was what was what what was needed. Yeah, oh no doubt. And um, not only did the, the African community, African American community, needed it, but America needed it. You know, because they were speaking to some truths. Oh, for sure. And it's funny how um, I have a, a sister-in-law who actually she did this piece right here. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And she posted something on Facebook the other day about something that she had done some years ago. And she says, you know, it's sad to think that one of her expressions that she did some years ago still has the same impact today. You know, it was, mm. you know, it was probably something that she worked on at well, some kind of way she was feeling, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Right, right. As an expression. And she looks at it now and goes, wow, the message still hasn't changed. You know, we do that in music all the time. We listen we to do. songs and go, wow. You know, that's the power of Gil Scott Heron. I mean, he's one of my heroes. And, um, you know, the revolution will not be televised. I mean, you know, the bottle. Oh, I mean, yes. you know, pieces yes. of a man, all these messages yeah. that yeah. Gil was throwing yeah. out there yeah. <laughs> still apply to this day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of his poetry stuff is, you know, the man on the moon and all these messages that he had. Incredible how you know Gil's gone, but but still relevant, man. You know, (laughs) you know. I mean, we think about what's going on and going on around us now. Yeah, major league. (laughs) Yes, yes, major league. And I, when I share, you know, with my kids, my son is sort of, you know, uh, you know, into the whole messaging piece. And I, you know, every now and then I'll throw a piece at him and say, you know, did you listen to this by Gil Scott here? And he'll. You go, who is this dad? I was going, Skills got here. And he's like, this was like made back in the, you know, in the 60s. And he's and he's just like thrown because, you know, at 22, 23, uh, he, he gets the connection and the message. And to think about how long ago it was written and how it still applies to the younger generations now. It's, it's incredible. Hope you've enjoyed part one of my conversation with Michael Friend. Next week, I will feature part two of the interview. If you would like information regarding the Soul in Motion African Dance and Drum, go to www.soulinmotion.org. That's www.soulinmotion.org. And for information on the Musicians Real Talk podcast, go to www.glendouglasmusic.com. That's www.glendouglasmusic.com. Remember, music is God's gift to the world. It is not your invention. Musicians Real Talk. Real Talk. That's real good. Thank you.